Stamps.com. Postage on demand. Print your own postage and ship your labels in seconds. Click instantly buy and calculate exact postage. Print postage labels, envelopes, or plain paper. Mail, affix postage and mail anywhere in the world. Give stamps.com to try. Get $5 of free postage. Check for offer details on stamps.com. Corporate postage solutions have more than two locations. Stamps.com Enterprises is the postage solution for you. Shipping solutions, process and print shipping labels fast, easy shipping, discounts, and more. Stamps.com U.S. postage meters. The choice is clear. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. Approved license vendor of USPS. Save big with discounted rates from USPS and UPS. Stamps.com is an independent vendor of the USPS and UPS. Uh, here's how it works. Open Stamps.com account. Simplify, simply click the Get Started button to sign up for Stamps.com and get access to all the services of the post office right from your computer 24-7. Even get discounts you can't get at the post office. Try it out with $5 free postage. Stamps.com will give you four weeks to see if they are right for you. Stamps.com is so confident you'll like them. They'll also throw on $5 free postage to use during the four weeks. Don't pay unless you stay. Cancel your account online or call one 855 to cancel in the four-week trial period and pay no service fee. The monthly fee is just $17.99 plus appreciable applicable taxes, if any, including the first month your service will continue uninterrupted as long as you do not cancel. Your 24-7 post office. Send invoices, letters, packages, print official UPS, USPS, postage, domestic, or international. No more guesswork. How much postage? What mail class? Stamps.com will figure it out for you. Eliminate trips to the post office. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk 24-7. Do more than a postage meter for less. Avoid hidden fees, equipment insurance and there's no extra hardware to buy or lease. Never pay full price or stamps again. Get postage discounts you can't even get at the post office. Customer support always ready for your help. Available by phone, email, or chat. Monday through Friday 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, PT. Uh, not just for small offices and mailings, multi-locations, solutions, shipping solutions, and warehouse solutions. ThriveMarket.com Healthy Living Made Easy Guaranteed Savings on Your Favorite Organic Brands Delivered to Your Door Healthy Groceries Shouldn't Break the Bank Low Price Promise Find a Product Cheaper Elsewhere Thrive Market Will Beat the Price How It Works Build Your Order Shop 6,000 or More Wholesome Products Curated just for members. Never run out. Get returning. <coughs> Get recurring deliveries on, on schedule personalized to you. You're in control. Easily add or remove items. Ship a skip a delivery or pause any time. Your new one-stop shop. From organic pantry staples to clean beauty. To non-toxic homes, shop by over 70 diets, 
and values, gluten-free, ketogenic, organic, vegan, safely sourced seafood. Thrive Market is aligned closely with key industry. <coughs> Watchdogs to identify partners who catch sustainable and traceable seafood. For $5 a month for a risk-free trial for 30 days, trust-free, carbon-neutral shipping, free gifts and samples, every membership gives to someone in need, give for better for you and the planet, ethical and sustainable sourcing, carbon-neutral shipping, zero-waste warehouses, recyclable, compostable packaging, Thrive also gives every... Annual membership sponsors a free one for our family in need. Thrive's mission is to help make a organic foods more accessible. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're ready for part three of U.S. President number 29, Warren G. Harding. Disarmament. Harding had urged disarmament and lower defense costs during the campaign, but it had not been a major issue. He gave a speech to a joint session of Congress in April 1921, setting out his legislative priorities. Among the few foreign policy matters he mentioned was disarmament, with the president stating that the government could not be mindful of the call for reduced expenditure on defense. Idaho Senator William Borah had proposed a conference at which the major neighbor powers of the the U.S., Britain, and Japan would agree to cut in their fleets. <coughs> Harding concurred, and at a Sunday diplomatic discussion, representatives of nine nations convened in Washington on November 20, uh, in November 1921. Most of the diplomats first attended Armistice Day ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery, where Harding spoke at the entombment of the unknown soldier of World War One, whose identity took flight with his imperishable soul. We know not whence he came, only that his death marks him with the everlasting glory of an American dying for this country. Hughes, in his speech at the opening session of the conference on November 12, 1991, made the American proposal the U.S. would decommission or not build 30 warships if Great Britain did the same for 19 vessels and Japan's 17 ships. The Secretary was generally successful and agreements were reached on this and other points, including settlements to disputes over islands in the Pacific and limitations on the use of poison gas. The naval agreement was limited to battleships and to some extent aircraft carriers and in the end did not prevent rearmament. Re Nevertheless, Harding and Hughes were widely applauded in the press for their work. Harding had appointed Senator Lodge and the Senate Minority Leader Alabama's Oscar Underwood to the U.S. delegation. They helped ensure that the treaties made it through the Senate. Mostly unscathed through that body added reservations to some. The U.S. had acquired over a thousand vessels during World War I and still owned most of them when Harding took office. Congress had authorized their disposal in 1920, but the Senate would not confirm Wilson's nominees to the shipboard. Harding appointed Albert Lasker as its chairman. The advertising executive undertook, the, undertook to run the fleet as promptly as possible until it could be sold. Most ships proved impossible to sell at anything approaching the government's cost. Alaska recommended a large subsidy to the merchant marine to enable the sales, and Harding repeatedly urged Congress to enact it. Unpopular in the Midwest, the bill passed the House, but was defeated by a filibuster in the Senate, and most government ships were eventually scrapped. Latin America Intervention in Latin America had been a minor campaign issue. 
Harding spoke against Wilson's decision to send U.S. troops to the Dominican Republic and Haiti and attacked the Democratic Vice President's candidate Franklin Roosevelt for his role in the Haitian intervention. Once Harding was sworn in, he used work to improve relations with Latin American countries where who were wary of the American use of the Monroe Doctrine to justify intervention. At the time of Harding's inauguration, the U.S. also had troops in Cuba and Nicaragua. The troops stationed in Cuba to protect American interests were withdrawn in 1921. U.S. forces remained in the other three nations through Harding's presidency. In April 1921, Harding gave the ratification of, of the Thomas Eurusha Treaty with Colombia, granting the, that nation $25 million, equivalent to 300 58.35 million in 2019 as settlement for the U.S. provoked Panamanian Revolution of 1903. The Latin America American nations were notably were not fully as the Latin American nations were not fully satisfied as the U.S. refused to renounce interventionism through Hughes, though Hayes pledged to limit it to nations near the Panama Canal and to make it clear that the U.S. aims were what the U.S. aims were. The U.S. had intervened repeatedly in Mexico under Wilson and had withdrawn diplomatic recognition, setting conditions for reinstatement. The Mexican government under President Alvaro Obregón wanted recognition before negotiations, but Wilson and his final Secretary of State, Bainbridge Colby, refused. Both Hughes and Fall opposed recognition. Hughes instead sent a draft to Treaty to the Mexicans in May 1921, which includes pledges to reimburse Americans for losses in Mexico since the 1910 re revolution there. Obregón was unwilling to sign a treaty before being recognized and worked to improve the relationship between American business and Mexico, reaching an agreement with creditors and amounting a public relations campaign in the United States. This had its effect, and by mid-1922, Fall was less influential than he had been blessing the resistance to recognition. The two presidents appointed commissioners to reach a deal and the U.S. recognized the Obergun government on August 31st, 1923, but un just under a month after Harding's death, substantially on the terms proffered by Mexico. Domestic Policy, Post-War Recession and Recovery When Harding took office on March 4, 1921, the nation was in the midst of a post-war economic decline. At the suggestion of its leaders, Harding called a special session of Congress to convene on April 1st, April 11th, when Harding addressed the joint session. The following day, he urged the reduction of income taxes raised during the war and increase in tariffs on agricultural goods to protect the American farmer, as well as more wide-range reforms, such as support for highways, aviation, and radio. But it was... Not until May 27th that Congress passed an emergency tariff increase on agriculture products, an act for authorizing a Bureau of the Budget fall on June 10th. Harding appointed Charles Dahl as Bureau Director with a mandate to cut expenditures. Mellon's tax cuts. Treasury Secretary Mellon also recommended to Congress that income tax rates be cut. He asked that the excess Profits tax on corporations be abolished. The House Ways and Means Committee endorsed Mellon's proposal, but some congressmen who wanted to raise tax rates on corporations fought the measure. Harding was unsure what side to endorse, telling a friend, I can't make a damn thing out of this tax problem. I listened to one side and they seem right, and then, God, I talked to the other side and they just seem just as right. Harding tried to compromise and gained passage of the bill in the House after the end of the excess process tax was delayed a year. In the Senate, the tax bill became entangled in efforts to vote 
World War One veterans as a soldier's bonus. Frustrated by the delays, on July 12th, Harding appeared before the Senate to urge it to pass the tax legislation without the bonus. It was not until November that the revenue bill finally passed with higher rates than Mellon had proposed. Secretary of the Treasury Andrew W. Mellon advocated lower tax rates. Harding had opposed the payment of a bonus to veterans, arguing in a Senate address that much was already being done for them by a grateful nation and that the bill would break down our Treasury, from which so much was later to, on to be expected. The Senate sent the bonus bill back to committee, but the issue returned when Congress reconvened in December 1921, a bill providing a bonus without a means of fund, fund in it. Uh, without a means of funding it, was passed by both houses in September 1922. Harding vetoed it, and the veto was narrowly sustained. A bonus not capable in cash, a bonus not payable in cash, was voted to soldiers despite Coolidge's veto in 1924. In his first annual message to Congress, Harding sought to p the power to adjust tariff rates. The passage of the tariff bill in the Senate and in conference committee became a friend feeding frenzy of lobby lobbyist interests. Harding, when he enacted the Fordney-McCumber Tariff Act on September 21, 1922, made a brief signing statement, praising only that the bill gave him some power to adjust rates. According to Tra Traney and Wilson, the bill was ill-considered. It, uh, it wrought havoc in international commerce and made the prepayment of war debts more difficult. Mellon ordered a study that demonstrated historically that as income tax rates were increased, money was driven underground or abroad. He concluded that lower, lower rates would increase tax revenues. Based on his vice Harding's revenue bill cut taxes starting in 1922. Top marginal rate was reduced annually in four stages from 33% in 1921 to 25% in 1925. Taxes were cut for Lower income starting in 1923, the lower rate substantially increased the money flowing to the Treasury. They also pushed massive deregulation and federal spending as a share of GDP fell from 6.5% to 3.5%. By late 1922, the economy began to turn around. Unemployment was paired from its 1921 high of 12% to an average of 3.3% for the remainder of the decade. The misery index, which is a combination of unemployment and inflation, had its sharpest decline in U.S. history under Harding. Wages, profits, and productivity all made substantial gains. Annual GDP increases averaged at over 5% during the 1920s. Libertarian historians Larry Schweikert and Michael Allen argue that Millen's tax policy set the stage for the most amazing growth yet seen in America's already impressive economy. Embracing new technologies. The 1920s were a time of modernization for America. Use of electricity became increasingly common. Mass production of the motor car stimulated other industries as well, such as Highway construction, rubber, steel, and building, and hotels were erected to accommodate the tourists venturing upon the roads. <coughs> this economic boost helped bring the nation out of the recession. To improve and expand the nation's highway system, Harding signed the Federal Highway Act of 1921. From 1921 to 1923, the federal government spent $162 million, equivalent to $2.4 in 2019, on America's highway system, infusing the U.S. economy with a large amount of capital. In 1922, Harding proclaimed that America was in the age of the motor car, which reflects our standard of living and gauges the speed of our present 
state line. Harding had urged regulation of radio broadcasting in his April 1921 speech to Congress. Commerce Secretary Hoover took charge of this project and convened a conference of radio broadcasters in 1922, which led to a voluntary agreement for licensing of radio frequencies through the Commerce Department. Both Harding and Hoover realized something more than an agreement was needed, but Congress was slow to act, not imposing radio regulation until 1927. Harding also wished to promote aviation, and Hoover again took the lead, convening a national conference on commercial aviation. The discussions focused on safety matters, inspection of airplanes, and licensing of pilots. Harding again promoted legislation, but nothing was done until 1926 when the Air Commerce Act created the Bureau of Aeronautics within Hoover's Commerce Department. Business and Labor Harding's attitude toward business was that government should aid it as much as possible. He was suspicious of organized labor, viewing it as a conspiracy against business. He sought to get them to work together at the at a conference on unemployment that called, that he called to meet in September 1921 at Hoover's recommendation. Harding warned in his opening address that no federal money would be available. No important legislation came as a result, though some public work projects were accelerated. Within broad limits, Harding allowed each cabinet secretary to run his department as they saw fit. Hoover expanded the Commerce Department to make it more useful to business. This was ex consistent with Hoover's view that the private sector should take the lead in managing the economy. Harding greatly respected his Commerce Secretary, often asked his advice, and backed him to the hilt, calling Hoover the smartest gink I know. Whereas widespread strikes marked 1922 as labor sought redress for falling wages and increased in unemployment. In April, 500,000 coal miners led by John L. Lewis struck over wage cuts. Struck over wage cuts. Monday, executives argued that the industry was seeing hard times. Lewis accused him of trying to break the union as the strike became protracted. Harding offered compromise to settle it as Harding proposed the miners agreed to return to work and Congress created a commission to look into their grievances. On July 1, 1922, 400,000 railroad workers went on strike. Harding proposed a settlement that made some recessions, but managed objective, but, but, but management objected. Attorney General Daugherty convinced Judge James H. Wilkerson to issue a sweeping injunction to break the strike, although there was public support for the Wilkerson injunction, and Harding felt it went too far and had Daugherty and Wilkerson amend it. The injunction succeeded in ending the strike, however, tensions remained high between railroad workers and management for years. By 1922, the eight-hour day had become common in American industry. One exception was in steel mills where workers labored through a 12-hour workday, seven days a week. Hoover considered this practice barbaric and got Harding to convene a conference of steel manufacturers with a view to, to ending the system. The conference established a committee under the leadership of U.S. Steel Chairman Elbert Gary, which in 1923 recommended again Against ending the practice, Hubert sent a letter to Gary deploying the result, which was printed in the press and public outcry caused the manufacturers to reverse themselves and standardize the eight-hour work, eight-hour day. Civil rights and immigration, although Harding's first address to Congress called for passage of anti-lynching legislation, he initially seemed inclined to do 
no more for African Americans than the Republican presence of the recent past had. He asked cabinet officers to find places for blacks in their departments. Sinclair suggested that the fact that Harding received two-fifths of the Southern vote in 1920 led him to see political opportunity for his party in the solid South. On October 26, 1921, Harding gave a speech in Birmingham, Alabama to a segregate audience of 20,000 whites and 10,000 blacks. Harding, while stating that the social and racial differences between whites and blacks could not be bridged, equal political rights for the African-American. Many African-Americans at that time voted Republican, especially in the Democratic South, and Harding stated he did not mind seeing that support and if the result was a strong two-party system in the South. He was willing to see literacy tests for voting continue if applied fairly to white and black. Whether you like it or not, Harding told his segregated audience, unless our democracy is a lie, you must stand for that equality. The white section of the audience listed in Silas while the black section cheered. Harding had spoken out against lynching in his April 1921 speech before Congress and supported Congressman Leonidas Dyer's federal anti-lynching bill, which passed the House of Representatives in January 1922. When it reached the Senate floor in November 1922, it was filibustered by Southern Democrats and Lodge withdrew it so as to allow the ship subsidy bill Harding favored to be debated. It was likewise filibustered. Blacks blame Harding for the dire bills defeat. Harding biographer Robert K. Murray noted that it was hastened to its end by Harding's desire to have the sh ship subsidy bill considered. With the bill, with the public suspicious of immigrants, especially those who might be socialists or communists, Congress passed the Per Centum Act of 1921, signed by Harding on May 19. May 19, 1921, as a quick means of restricting immigration. The act reduced the numbers of immigrants to 3% of those from a given country living in the U.S. based on the 1910 census. This would, this would in practice, not restrict immigration from Ireland and Germany, but would bar many Italians and Eastern European Jews. Harding and Secretary of Labor James Davis believed that enforcement had to be humane, and at the Secretary's recommendation, Harding allowed almost a thousand deportable immigrants to remain. <coughs> Coolidge later signed the Immigration Act of 1924, permanently restricting immigration to the U.S. Death and political prisoners. Harding's socialist opponent in 1920, in the 1920 election, Eugene Debs was serving a 10-year sentence in the Atlanta Penitentiary for speaking against the war. Wilson had refused to pardon him before leaving office. Darwin met with Debs and was deeply impressed. There was opposition from veterans, including the American Legion, and also from Florence Harding. The president did not feel he could release Debs until the war was officially over, but once the peace treaties were signed, commuted Debs' sentence on December 23, 1921, and Harding's request, Debs visited the president at the White House before going home to Indiana. Harding released 23 other war opponents at the same time as Debs that continued to review cases and released political prisoners throughout his presidency. Harding, Harding defended his prisoner releases as necessary to return the nation to normalcy. Judicial appointments Harding appointed four justices to the Supreme Court of the United States when Chief Justice Edward Douglas White died on, in May 1921. Harding was unsure whether to appoint former President Taft or former Utah Senator George Sutherland, he had promised seats on the court to both men after briefly considering a 
awaiting another vacancy and appointing them both. He chose Taft as Chief Justice. Sutherland was appointed to the court in 1922 to be followed by two other economic conservatives, Pierce Butler and Edward Terry Sanford, in 1923. Harding also appointed six judges to the United States Courts of Appeals, 42 judges to the United States District Court, and two judges to the United States Court of Custom Appeals. Political Setbacks and Western Tour Entering the 1922 midterm congressional election campaign, Harding and the Republicans had followed through on many of their campaign promises, but some of the fulfill, fulfilled pledges, like cutting taxes for the well-out, did not appeal to the electorate. The economy had not returned to normalcy within unemployment at 11%, and organized labor angry over the outcome of the strikes. From, three, from 303, Republicans... Republicans elected to the House in 1920, the new 68th Congress would see that the party fall to a 22, 221 to 213 majority. In, in the Senate, the Republicans lost eight seats and 51 to 96 senators in the new Congress, which Harding did not survive to meet. A month after the election, the lame duck session of the old 67th Congress met. Harding had, had come to believe that his Early view of the president that it should propose policies but leave whether to adopt them to Congress was not enough, and he lobbied Congress, although in vain, to get his ship subsidy bill through. Once, once Congress left town in early March 1923, Harding's popularity in the country began to recover. The economy was improving, and the programs of Harding's more able cabinet members, such as Hughes, Mellon, and Hoover, were showing results. Most Republicans realized that there was no practical alternative to supporting Harding in 1924. In the first half of 1923, Harding did two acts that were later said to indicate foreknowledge of death. He sold the star though undertaken to remain as a contributing editor for 10 years after his presidency, and made a new will. Harding long suffered occasional health problems, but when he was not experiencing symptoms, he tended to eat, drink, and smoke too much. By 1919, he was aware he had a heart condition. Stress caused the presidency, and by Florence Harding's ill health, she had a chronic kidney condition, debilitated him. He and he never really recovered from an episode of influenza in, in January 1923. After that, Harding and Abbott Glover had difficulty completing a round in June 1923. Ohio Senator Wells met with Harding, but brought to the president's attention only two of the five items he intended to discuss when asked why Wills' father, Warren, seemed so tired. On, in ju early June 1923, Harding set out on a journey which he dubbed the Voyage of Understanding. <coughs> the president planned to cross the country, go north to Alaska Territory, journey south along the west coast, then travel by U.S. Navy ship from San Diego along the Mexico-Central America west coast, through the Panama Canal to Puerto Rico, and to return to Washington at the end of August. Harding loved to travel and had long contemplated a trip to Alaska. The trip would allow him to speak widely across the country to politic and blow via in advance of the 1924 campaign and allow him some rest away from Washington's oppressive summer heat. Harding's political advisors had given him a physically demanding schedule, even though the president had ordered it cut back. In Kansas City, Harding spoke on transportation issues in Hutchinson, Kansas. Kansas agriculture was a the theme. In Denver, he spoke on prohibition and continued west, making serious speeches not matched by any president until Franklin Roosevelt. Harding had become a supporter of the World Court 
and he wanted the U.S. to become a member. In addition to making speeches, he visited Yellowstone and Zion National Parks and dedicated a monument on the Oregon Trail at a celebration organized by Venerable Pioneer Ezra Meeker and others. On July 5th, Hardy embarked on US Hen USS Henderson in Washington State, their first president to visit Alaska. He spent hours watching the Democratic landscapes from the deck of the Henderson after several stops along the coast. The president party, presidential party left the ship at Seward to take the Alaska Central Railroad to McKinley Park in Fairbanks, where he addressed a crowd of 1,594 degrees Fahrenheit, 34 degrees Celsius heat. The parties was to return to, to Seward by the Richardson Trail, but due to Harding's fatigue, it went by train. In July 26, 1923, Harding toured Vancouver, British Columbia as the first American first sitting American president to visit Canada. He was welcomed by Premier of British Columbia and the Mayor of Vancouver and spoke to a crowd of over 50,000. Two years after his death, a memorial to Harding was unveiled in Stanley Park. Harding visited the golf course but completed only six holes before becoming fatigued. After wrestling for about an hour, he played the 17th and 18th holes so it would appear he had completed the round. He was not Successful in hiding his exhaustion, one report deemed him looking so tired that a rest of mere days would not be sufficient to refresh him. In Seattle, the next day, Harding kept up his business together, giving a speech to 25,000 people at the stadium at the University of Washington. In, in the final speech he gave, Harding predicted statehood for Alaska. The president rushed through his speech, not waiting for applause by the audience. Death and Funeral President Harding went to bed early on the evening of July 27, a few hours after giving a speech at the University of Washington later that night. He called for his physician, Charles E. Sawyer, complaining of pain in the upper abdomen. Sawyer thought that it was a recurrence of a dietary upset, but Dr. Joel T. Boone suspected a heart problem. The, prog the press told the press was told Harding had experienced an acute gastrointestinal attack, and the president scheduled and the president's scheduled weekend in Portland was canceled. He felt better the next day as the train rushed to Times Visit. They arrived on the morning of July 29th, and he insisted on walking from the train to the car, which rushed him to the Palace Hotel, where he suffered a relapse. Doctors found not only that his heart was causing problems, but also that he had pneumonia, and he was confined to bed rest in his hotel room. Doctors treated him with liquid caffeine and digitalis, and it seemed to improve. Hoover released Harding's foreign policy address, advocated membership in the World Court, and the president was ple pleased that it was favorably received. By the afternoon of August 2nd, doctors allowed him to sit up in bed at around 7.30 p.m. that in Florence was reading him a calm review of a calm man, a flattering article from the Saturday evening post. She paused to fluff his bills and told her, and he told her, that's good, go on, read some more, which were to be his last words. She resumed reading. When a few seconds later, Harding suddenly twisted convulsively and collapsed back into the bed, gasping. Florence Harding immediately called the doctors into the room, but they were unable to revive the president with, with stimulants. Warren G. Harding was pronounced dead a few minutes later at the age of 57. His death was initially attributed to a cerebral hemorrhage, as doctors at the time did not generally understand the symptoms of cardiac arrest. Stay tuned for part four of U.S. President number 29, Warren G. Harding.